0: to Slutsk in order to find out what happened to his family, because the rumors were that nobody survived the war. He was working uh, on the street in Slutsk and he met one Belarusian woman who recognized my father immediately, maybe because he didn't change a lot, he was still young. And she said, if you are Isaac, I have something for you. So she brought a very small roll of wallpaper, which she got from my grandma, from Isaac's mom. Through the barbed wire, uh, she got this uh, roll of the wallpaper. My grandma was writing the story of ghetto on that piece of paper, uh, documenting everything that was happening in ghetto between 1941, July 1941, and February uh, 3rd, 1943 when uh, the ghetto was liquidated.
1: Every family has a story. A legendary figure in the genealogical tree. In my family, this hero and patriarch is my grandfather, Isaac Yevilev. The legacy he left as a survivor, a family man, and a master portrait photographer has shaped my identity, my values, and my own career. This story is framed by two crucial journeys. The first was on a bicycle dirt roads of Belarus. The second, nearly 50 years later, brought us to America. Welcome to the Sasha Photography Podcast. Together with my father, Igor, we dig deep into our family history. Join me. Part one.
0: So, well, um, I don't know a lot about uh, my father's childhood. Uh, there are only a few short stories which I can share at this moment. Um, but I know that my father was born in a big family uh, in a small town, Slutsk. It's about 25 miles uh, south from Minsk, which is capital of Belarus um the family was big and mostly um since the population of slutsk was uh mostly jewish all schools were uh, jewish and um my father was uh, studying every single subject in yiddish and at home they were speaking yiddish before the war just probably a year or two before the world war ii began uh, all the schools were converted to Belarusian, so it was quite hard for kids to start uh, speaking Belarusian uh, on a regular basis, like every day, specifically at home. My father was from the family with three boys. His oldest brother, Zalman, uh, he was like seven years older than my father, and uh, my father was born in 1923. He also had younger brother, but uh, it was a tragedy. Uh, at the age eleven or twelve, uh, his brother was just crossing the bridge, which at that time they had they had like um, military um, security for every bridge, and uh, some kind of uh, soldier. He just thrown the stone and hit my ankle. I would say now uh, in head, and he died immediately. So um, that was the tragedy uh, in a family uh, which I know about. My father um, graduated from uh, the school. At that time they had seven grades in school. After seventh grade, he. Uh, went to the college, it was Polytechnical College in Minsk, but he was able to finish only one year in the college, and the uh, Germans um, invaded uh, Russia, and evidently the Belarusia was the first step in their move to the territory um, in Belarus and in Russia. Very quickly they moved to Minsk, and my father with his friend, the student friend, they, of course, could not take any train or bus at that time. So they just simply walked to Slutsk uh, for a few days trying to bypass the Nazi soldiers and their tanks and other military vehicles and their soldiers. And they, went, as soon as they um, entered Slutsk, uh, the next day uh, Germans were there. That's as much as I know, because at that point my father told me many years ago that almost immediately Germans organized a Jewish ghetto. So they surrounded the area with barbed wire and nobody could enter or exit that area. My father's family, extended family with all cousins and second cousins and all grandparents was about 40-45 people, with little kids, uh, like 3-4 years old. So the ghetto was um, secured not by only Nazis, but also by Lithuanian collaborators. Uh, It was uh, quite a force of uh, people who hated Jews and they were willing to to serve for food and uh, participate, they participated in all atrocities against the Jewish people. So within few weeks, uh, the ghetto was surrounded by barbed wire, and my dad told me the story also that all his friends from from the school and from the college, young Jewish boys and girls, uh, were taken by Nazis and shot because they were wearing like special signs of young communist uh, league or just simply like sport uh, achievement uh, medals or whatever. So Germans and Lithuanian collaborators, they considered uh, all these people the first enemies to be shot. And of course there was not any access or exit from the area. In July of 1941, after Germans uh, started shooting young people, my grandfather, um, his name was Israel. Of course, I've never met him. Um, he told my father to take a bike uh, and run away from Ghetto. Uh, To this moment there were few places where you could either cut the wire or just, you know, get under it, and uh, some people were able to escape. Um, The family had only one transportation, that was the bicycle, and my father uh, took the bicycle and he pedaled away from Geta. Grandfather said that, um, in his opinion, before my father left, that Germans won't touch elderly people and they will persecute and they shoot only young young, um, generation.
2: Do you think that your father, my grandfather, do you think that when his dad, Israel, when he told him that and when he sent him away from the ghetto, do you think that he? Do you think that he believed his father or do you think that he understood that they were in grave, that his family was in grave danger? Was he really reluctant to leave? Did did you ever talk to him about that?
0: Of course, he was a young boy. He was only um, 18 and almost 18. uh, And uh, he tried to believe his father. And since um, there were so many atrocities against Jewish people before the war and all this... uh, Um, time when that Russian KGB that time, they persecuted people and specifically Jewish people, the most talented artists, uh, writers and so on on. of course his father I believe his father had known what might happen and uh, for my father it was of course it was a very tragic option to run away from his family but it's hard to say, but I believe he felt that moment that his father wanted him to be alive. That's that's the only thing I can say. His brother Zalman was uh, drafted in Red Army. At that time, they call it Red Army. He was drafted in 1940. Mm-hmm. And when the war began, he was not well trained yet. He was in a special zone. And so, when the Germans started bombing this uh, place, by lucky chance he survived. As he told me once, uh, he was hiding behind a huge tree. So, when the the airplanes left, uh, he just walked around the tree and he saw it was smoking from all the pieces of shrapnel and so on. So, by lucky chance he survived and he later was uh, transferred to the combat place, and he was fighting Nazis.
2: So Zalman had had already left Slutsk long before the the Germans came and long before the ghetto was established?
0: Yes, yes. He uh, so Zalman and my father, only two brothers who escaped from, actually, from persecution that time.
2: Were there any other members of the family at that time that Tried to escape, or that that were you know, or or was he kind of the one that was, uh, basically picked to, to get
0: on the bicycle and go. There was also their cousin. Uh, also, his name was Zalman. His last name Kranstein. He was also uh, uh, out of Slutsk. That's why he was uh, able to survive that time, and he was also drafted uh, into Red Army.
2: So he sneaks out at night on his bicycle.
0: Yeah, he had very old bicycle and he was paddling mostly during nighttime because during daytime, uh, German uh, you know, army was moving along the roads. Uh, and of course there were lots of refugees and they were kicked out and some of them were shot. So my father tried to s- stay uh, away from the uh, open roads. So at night he was pedaling uh, and during daytime he was hiding in woods, in the woods. And uh, I asked him also I remember what kind of food he could find. And he said that summer of 1941, July and August were the hottest months probably that year. And uh, he was able to find forgotten fields, you know, like some potatoes some carrots which farmers just left on on in the fields also he told me one story when he reached the uh factory where the milk was um put in cans and since it was bombed some milk was still in cans and it was the, all the milk was like thrown out and he couldn't open this aluminum can because he didn't have any tools, so in order for him to, to open the can of milk, it took him like few hours in order to drink that probably already spoiled, but still some, some food. So altogether he had to pedal for about 400 kilometers, like 250 miles before he reached um, unoccupied zone, which was um, in Gomel after Gomel, and that's where his bicycle like fell apart. He didn't have any rubber anymore. So he was able at night to sneak on a train and get away probably on one of the last trains which left the city. So that's that's the story. And then on that train, he was just moving east. Uh, just he tried to get on any other train just to get further, further from from Nazis. And finally, he reached city of Rostov. It's already Russia, Russian territory. And in Rostov, he and his friend um, went to military. Uh, Department, It's called commissariat, and he got drafted into army, but since he did not uh, get age 18, uh, he was not sent straight to combat, but rather sent to the military college. It was a short course college in a uh, rural uh, area. So after about three months, uh, since he he was, for that time he was really educated person. He was uh, um, one year old student from the college. He graduate he didn't graduate, but he was able to finish one year in the college. So, compared to the other soldiers and other young people, he was really educated, and. Um, he got two stars on his um, on his uh, military uniform. Lieutenant, he was lieutenant, and um, it was very important for him to become an officer, even this you know lower rank officer. But he became an officer. Why was it important? Because he was able to um, not only to uh, to hold, you know, the gun in his hand, but he was able to command other soldiers and sometimes save their lives. Um, in particular, one moment um, he was on the Bransk um, area; uh, it's a big city in Russia, and there was a heavy uh, fighting there. And specifically, there was uh, um the Germans were shooting from the uphill, uh, from uh, certain, you know, well-equipped with the heavy guns uh, points, and nobody had known how to reach that particular, um, it was called dot, uh, it's... Um, like a fortified bunker. Fortified bunker. Mm-hmm. How to reach there safely and how to, uh, you know, to to... To destroy it. So the, the only one person who had known topography, it was my father. And he found the safe path to that particular fortified zone. At night and with few soldiers, and they were able to reach that fortified zone and eliminate the Nazis there and uh, save many, many lives of regular soldiers, of course, for that um, he got the decoration on his chest. It was uh, the ordin of uh, Red um, Star. It was one of the highest um, decorations for the lower rank officer. Did you talk to him,
2: uh, when you talked to him about his war experiences, do you know, like at this time in his life, Is he, is he, what is What is his, what motivates him? Like, is he motivated by his, you know, the being separated from his family? Uh, Is he a patriot? Is he, like, is he a true believer? You know, what, do you know something about his mindset at that time?
0: So this time, it was in 1943, uh, he already known um the facts how Nazis uh, killed civilians, how they bombed the cities and towns, how they killed his close friends and of course he was willing to fight the war uh, you know shoulder to shoulder to the other soldiers no matter who were they. He told me that lots of uh, soldiers in his... Um, particular unit were like three times older than him, uh, like 50 years old and uh, at that time people were feeling that the only option was to fight Nazis to prevent uh, more atrocities and more killings uh, uh, against not only Russians and Jews but all other Nationalities in Russia. So there was not any choice Just fight and um, Try to save the lives of regular people That's that's the only thing and he had known nothing about his family uh, The family he left behind he had just known to this moment that they were living on occupied territory but he didn't know if they were alive or they were shot or he didn't know anything only f- few years later he found the real story uh, about his family
2: do you know anything about his s- some of his habits at that time in his life cuz he he's kind of you know, from a lot of our family stories, he's kind of this, like, mythic person, you know, he went through a tremendous amount, you know, even just up to that point in the war, um, and, and he's, you know, doing a lot of heroic things, and so he exists in, like, as, as his grandchildren, at least, like, he exists in our consciousness as this person who is a, a hero. A hero on a journey and and he's going through some of the most difficult experiences that a human being can endure. do you know anything about his his habits like something about his personality at that time in his life uh, anything that he told you or or anything that you can remember?
0: I know that no matter what happened with His war experience, and of course the soldier just shoots, he doesn't think a lot. But I remember he was telling the story how they were able to catch one uh, young German soldier, and uh, the the guy was just crying and asking to save his life, and uh, my father was uh, in charge of making a decision what to do with this guy. And the guy was probably same age as my father. So some of his colleagues, I would say some of the Russian soldiers, they said, just let's just shoot him and forget about it. Um, but my father said, no, you cannot do that. He is a prisoner of war and you cannot do that. So this is kind of... Um, Personality my father had no matter what uh, hardship and what atrocities he was experienced but he stayed a very nice uh, person and as I said his soldiers in his unit were sometimes much older than him for example he didn't smoke so he was giving away all the cigarettes to, to the soldiers who were smoking for them it was a kind of to to, you know some stuff to enjoy during this hard war times
2: do you think he became a commanding officer because that was kind of the path um, that that happened by by accident or by, by chance or because there weren't enough men or do you think that he there's something about his personality, even at that time when he's young. You know, he's when, when he enlists, he's 18 years old. It's 1941, right? So he's still a very young man. Do you think that at that time,
1: he he was a, a real leader?
0: I believe so, and he he has still in, now he's 92. The but since early ages. He was able to to be not only the leader but to be able to um, to feel people comfortable around him. Later on in his profession, he just you know many times he experienced the same situation when he had to you know initiate something. To create the new environment, to, to be creative, to, to be a leader. That's, that's the, the reason he did it. And he was very talented in many ways. Uh, even uh, at the age 18 or 19, he was very talented. With the short uh, course of education, he was able to, to become an officer. That's, that's amazing, because th- for that time even the weapons and these guns were not so come you know, sophisticated. He was able to, to learn this, and um, that's that's his ability. His sense of humor even helped him a lot, and he still has some sense of humor, um, and of course, his feelings against the enemies. That's also. Those feelings led him to fight and to, you know, to, to lead other people to the war. To the, to the, some, some of them died, uh, like when he was heavily wounded uh, in one combat, all uh, soldiers around him were killed and he survived because the young uh, nurse just pulled him out from, from the field and saved his life.
2: What year was that when he was wounded?
0: It was in late 1943.
2: And what happened after that?
0: After that, he was sent to the hospital, and um, medical commission uh, decided not to send him back to to the um, um, active war combat. And he was, after spending some time in hospital, he was, uh, they call it commission, commission, and he, he was sent to the Ural area. They had uh, the warehouse where they stored um, chemical uh, shells, now it's called weapons of mass destruction. So, chemicals in the artillery shells were stored in that warehouse. He even told me that the horses had special gas masks. The people, like soldiers in the security unit, they were riding these horses and everyone was having this gas mask on, even the horses. So, he was responsible for the security of this huge weapons of mass destruction uh, warehouse. Still in military, of course.
2: And he was stationed there until the end of the war?
0: He was stationed there even later than the end of the war. During this period of time, uh, through the military communications, he was able to find his brother, uh, where was the location of his brother. It was really difficult, but he was f- able to find, probably through the hospital documents or something, that his, his brother, his older brother Zalman, was uh, wounded in and sent to um, Uzbekistan for treatment and he stayed there till the end of the war. So at least my father had known where his older brother was, but he still didn't know the fate of his family because nobody had known. It was not possible to get any news from Belarus.
2: So he's he's out in uh, somewhere in the Urals, basically uh, guarding this this warehouse. He knows something about the whereabouts of his brother Uh, and then the war ends and he's there for another several months after the end of the war.
0: Yeah, he was writing to his brother and they had some communications. So sometime in 1946, his brother uh, was already um, residing in Polotsk, it's a small town in Belarus. Uh, so the war ended in May 1945, but this area was liberated from Nazis in 19, in July of 1944. So his older brother, who stayed in Uzbekistan, fell in love with one Jewish girl there, and uh, the, she was originally from Polotsk. So they moved back to Polotsk as soon as it was liberated. My father, in 1946, He got a special uh, task to carry secret documents to Moscow. Uh, And when he was in Moscow and he received this package, he was sitting uh, at the train station and he can see the schedule, the train Moscow-Polotsk. So he had never been in of course in Polotsk before but he to this moment he he knew that his fa- his brother already lives in that small town so he just picked the tickets and he took the train to Polotsk when he arrived uh, there uh he just walked along the street uh, of course the the town was completely destroyed Polotsk was also the Jewish town before the war uh, most of the population was jewish and um, he was walking along the street and he just asked uh, if somebody had known the person by name zalman Yevler. so somebody says oh we know if he is a photographer we know everybody knows him so he got his address and that's how he met his older brother like six years or almost seven years later um he had to leave the town and get back to his uh, unit in ural area so
2: how did how did zalman go from being wounded in uzbekistan to moving to Polotsk to becoming a photographer did he have Training, or did he have equipment, or how did he decide to do it?
0: He was a very experienced amateur photographer before the war, so he used the first Russian cameras that time. For example, it was the photo the camera, it was called Photocor, um, and uh, he had lots of experience in using the camera. And yeah, my father also did some some photography when he was a young boy. Um, I remember the story um, when uh, he took pictures of young girls swimming, you know, in a river without any clothes on. And my father was interested in girls, so he took some pictures. But that time he could not get uh, chemicals to develop the pictures, so. He hid the, the negatives in, in the stove because summertime nobody used the stove. But somehow his mom found this negatives, I would say, in this film. And she was able to <laughs> to see what was on that. He, he was really punished for, for this kind of <laughs> um, photography. But his brother was experienced... Uh, already in using the camera, and uh, they didn't have a lot of photographers that time in town. And uh, his uh, left arm, uh, Zalman's left arm was um, fully, you know, um, damaged during the war. And he could use his left arm, so the only only job he could do uh, which didn't require both hands. And since he was already an experienced photographer, he opened the first photography spot on a farmer's market in Polotsk. It was on a farmer's market where he built his like uh, shed where he took pictures uh, with his photocore.
2: So he he built a shed in in the market and it was like a permanent structure? Or it's something that he would have to set up and break down? Every time he went there?
0: It was like a permanent structure, but it was not a real photo studio. And of course he didn't have lights then. What people did, photographers did, they had the ceiling with like glass ceiling and they moved like blinds, they moved up and down left and right to create certain lighting conditions, to create extra light, you know, counter light, or whatever it needed for pictures. And the materials, photography materials, uh, all these photographic materials were not high quality. Mostly people use either trophies from Germany. Uh, I know that my father later on he used Leica, which also uh, camera from Germany. Later on Russians developed uh, their own camera, like 35 millimeter camera. Uh, It's called FED by the name of the head of uh, special commission, Um That's, that's uh, interesting. But anyways, it was uh, Felix Edmundovich Dzerzhinsky. Fed, that's the first camera was called. It was a copy of Leica, actually. Mm-hmm. And the very first, I would say, high-quality uh, film camera uh Produced in Russia, of course, with German uh, uh, lenses and everything, but that's what my uncle and my father used.
2: So they eventually, the Soviets eventually copied a, a German camera and named it after the former head of the NKVD. Yes. Fantastic. <laughs> um, so, okay, so Zalman began doing photography and the one thing that's not also not clear to me about well about Zalman's experience and also about grandpa's experience later is um you know from what i understand at that time there wasn't any like private business private enterprise right how how did it work like how was he able to just kind of open a you know a pop-up uh photography shed in the market um, and and was he running it like a like a private business?
0: In the beginning, uh, it was the situation after the World War II. It was the situation when people had to make any money, and uh, Russian government let them run not, I would say, small business, but at least something to be able to survive. Uh, they had to get special. Of- Course, like certificate or license to do it and uh, that was the situation similar to the time called in Russian NAP new economic politics after the revolution when they allowed uh, small enterprises small people to restore some businesses to be able to provide uh, services to population because government was not able of course to do it Mm-hmm. and since the uh, lots of uh, soldiers and people were coming back from war uh, everybody needed to get any kind of passport a uh, document or military document or um, any pictures, mostly pictures people had to take were for documents they need to establish mm-hmm. themselves uh, back into the civil life and that's how my uncle started working. And he needed help. The more and more people were coming back, uh, the more work or load he got. He needed assistance. Uh, that's how he hired my father as a darkroom technician. He uh, because all the prints, uh, black and white, of course, needed to be printed on the photo, photo paper. So. My father became a darkroom technician at his uh, his brother's uh, photography shed. I would say studio.
2: So so his so Zalman his brother had a this this shed in the market which served as a photography studio using you know available light and like glass panels to to move those around to create lighting and that shed also had in it uh, a darkroom.
0: Yes, yes, it has a dark room and mostly, of course, they use uh, trophy equipment from Germany. So that's what they used. They were able to buy on the same market. It was like a farmer's market, but they were able to buy materials and chemicals there. That's, it was not established supply of anything. So, uh, like for every good business, you need supply of equipment, of light, of lighting, and chemicals, and photo paper, and the film, and everything. And if you, for example, can imagine photocore. Photocore was the camera uh, where the film was not installed instantly for the taking of the picture. So the first photographer had to look through the matte glass and the focus on the subject, then without shaking the camera you had to push a little bit this matte glass and install the cassette with the film, then slowly slowly you need to move out the lead on that cassette to open the film to the, to the lens and mm-hmm. then you do exposure so also you should do it either manually or just counting one and a half second or something, depending on how sensitive is the graphic material. So to this uh, you know, 21st century it sounds funny, but that's how most of the pictures were taken. And then you close this lid and you hide this in a special um, uh, box like black box, till the moment you have chemicals to develop the film. So it, it's quite complicated process uh, if you think about it. Mm.
2: And so for Zalman's photography business at the time, he was located in this market. He was doing the photography and developing all the prints, on, on site, basically in the shed. And he was using uh trophy cameras that had been, you know, confiscated from, from Germans during the war. Uh was stolen. Or stolen. Confiscated. Appropriated. Um and did he So and everybody in the town knew who he was. So when you said when grandpa came to Polotsk from you know on that train from Moscow and he started looking for his brother. it seemed that everybody knew oh, it's Zalman the photographer everybody knows who he is. So is it just that it's it was such a small place and so intimate that everybody knew that there was this guy at the market that took pictures? That's kind of how it worked. Yes,
0: it was also the small Jewish population people who survived the war. And in our small town, everyone, every Jewish person, especially elderly people, they had, uh, I would say, nickname. So, later on, my father was known in town as Isaac Fotografsik. So, the same thing was about my uncle, so everybody had known him as Zalman And. Almost all people had kind of nicknames, but for that time, for my father, the major project was, first of all, to survive there, to establish himself and maybe to find a nice girl there. And also he wanted to find out what, what happened to his family. So he... Uh, traveled to Slutsk, in order to find out what happened to his family. Because the rumors were that nobody survived the war. He was working uh, on the street in Slutsk and he met one Belarusian woman who recognized my father immediately. Maybe because he didn't change a lot, he was still young. And she said, if you are Isaac, I have something for you. So she brought a very small roll of wallpaper, which she got from my grandma, from Isaac's mom. Through the barbed wire, uh, she got this uh, roll of the wallpaper. My grandma was writing the story of Geta on that piece of paper, uh, documenting everything that was happening in Ghetto between 1941, July 1941, and February uh, 3rd, 1943, when uh, the Ghetto was liquidated. Uh, and all the population was shot by Lithuanians and Nazis. Germans in the suburbs of Slutsk. Um, For example, um, one story, unfortunately that of course document did not survive all these years, but one of the stories was written by my grandma about um, Kapo. Kapo, uh, they call collaborator, Jewish collaborator who worked for both, for Nazis and for Jewish population of Geta. Uh, and he came uh, to my grandma and he said that uh, a German commander has his birthday. So they need all the ladies, all the Jewish women in Geta must uh, bake the cake and decorate it with gold and silver, whatever they have. Uh, and they hide from Nazis, so they they bake huge cake, and my, ma- my grandma took her wedding ring from her finger and her other like golden chain, and they decorated this cake. In exchange, Germans promised not to persecute little boys and girls and babies. Um, but in a month, uh, this uh, ghetto was uh, completely liquidated and all people were killed So, the story was written on the, on the piece of wallpaper which my father received from that Belarusian witness and fortunately it did not survive for all this, you know, over 75 years So
2: he met this Belarusian woman, and she gave him this this paper, and she basically gave him the news that uh, the entire that the entire ghetto, everybody had been killed several years before.
0: Yeah, yeah. She she even witnessed the the persecu- the 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 uh, the spot where all the pe- people were you know killed or some of them buried alive. She told him that. Uh, uh My father's cousin was killed by one bullet uh, uh, which killed her and her baby. She was holding it in her hands, so nobody survived
2: was it uh I mean obviously it must have been extremely shocking for him to find that out, but do you think He suspected that that had happened anyway, having gone through the war and having witnessed what he witnessed as a soldier on the battlefield.
0: I don't think he understood till the last moment, when he got this uh, information, all the cruelty and all the terrible uh, death that the family met in 1943 and how they survived almost three years in this concentration camp, I would say, because every day somebody was killed. He did not um, know their fate, and of course it's it's hard to imagine what he felt at that moment. Uh, I know that in the place where the ghetto was liquidated, there was a very small monument with the writing in Yiddish, but in early 60s, uh, Belarusian government officials visited that place and they said that they don't understand. They didn't understand what was written on the monument, and they requested to replace it and to remove um, even the numbers. So instead of like 30,000 in Yiddish, there was written like 30,000. Jews were killed uh, in this spot, they removed one zero. And they written this in Belarusian instead of Yiddish on the monument. I was there when I was a, a boy, probably nine years old. I was in that spot.
2: He took you there?
0: Yeah, my father took me there. Uh, we were, we, we hired the cab and we went to that place a little bit uh, south from Slutsk it's a place called Garavaha.
2: and you were nine years old, and was that the first time that you learned about what happened to your grandparents and your extended family? yeah yeah, I
0: didn't know anything about about this uh, until my father took me uh, my mom and my sister to that place and um I know that now the names are in Yad Vashem, all all the the family names who were stored, they are written in Yad Vashem.
2: So, he took that trip, it was sometime in like 1946,
0: 1947, when he went to Yeah, it was 1946, and then... um, he was working as a darkroom technician for his brother, and it's interesting story how he actually met my mom. It's mm-hmm. a very romantic story. Uh, one night after they finished their work, Zalman told my father, "Just uh, take take a look at that uh, film. Um, I've got a picture of young Jewish girl." just take a look at her she looks really pretty and um, just take a look at her so my father printed this uh, documentary uh, picture it's called uh, 4 by 6 4 centimeters by 6 centimeters probably for passport or something and he liked the picture and he liked the girl and he printed extra couple of pictures for himself He put this photo in his uh, pocket. He was still wearing his military uniform. Of course, without without decorations, but he was still wearing uniform. And um, uh, using that picture, he started his search for the girl. Um, Polotsk, a small town uh, with population about 40,000 people before the war, uh, was completely destroyed. Now, only a few buildings survived the war, and one of those buildings was uh, like uh, the college from the Tsar's times. It was the college for young officers because it was built very strong, and probably Germans kept their their uh, own um, you know units or departments. So. Uh, in the basement of that um, building, they had a dance club dancing. So they they used gramophone or whatever they used that to play music, and young people were dancing there. Um, so my father was twenty three, and few times he had to go to the dance club, and finally he met uh, my future mom. So they were dating, and uh, not so long, and uh, in 1947, they got married.
2: So he he went to this dance club several times, and he tried to, he assumed that he would find her there, and he had the photograph? Yeah. So he was basically like a, almost like a, a detective, like looking for for her based on this picture. And is that how he ultimately found her? Like he recognized her from the photo?
0: Yes, he recognized her. And I remember mom said once, I was surprised when the the young officer, you know, in his uniform, just walking straight to me and invites me to dance.
2: (laughs) Did did they have an instant connection? Did you know that about, you know, their, their initial meetings, like how they felt about each other?
0: Uh, I talked to uh, my wife's aunt, who lives in Israel, Uh, she calls her Tiotia Mania, she's in her late 80s, like 86, 85, 86 years old, and I asked her about my parents, how she remembers my parents, and she said, Ida and Isaac were the most uh, beautiful couple in the whole town. So, that's, that's what she said.
2: They were married in 1947. 47. And your mom, or my grandmother, she her her family, her parents also perished in the war?
0: No. My mom uh, and her family, they lived in Polotsk before the war. My mom had two sisters, an uh, older sister, and younger sister, Lubov, And they were able to run away from Nazis. Uh, They took the train from Polotsk and they uh, were able to escape to Siberia uh, with long, long, of course, uh, way to to reach Siberia region. Uh, Her father, my grandpa, Zalman, his name name was Zalman. He was not a really healthy person. Um, He was, I remember mom said, he was really ill after being one of the builders of the huge bridge across the Dvina River in Polotsk. He got sick over there. But um, they were able to survive the war because one of my distant relatives, uh, my mom's aunt uh, found them during the war and helped them to survive because she was working in the military supply system and she helped them not by only providing them with some food but mostly with assisting in getting jobs in that area and my mom uh, became a teacher even she, like my father, she had only few years of the uh, college. Um, she was studying to be a teacher. So the family, my mom's family, lived in Polotsk for some time, because they returned in
2: 1945. So when uh, Grandpa asked... Grandma to to marry him did he, also have to ask her family for permission?
0: I don't know this detail, but yeah. maybe they like him. That's that's the evidently, because they not only, uh, agreed on this marriage, but they also took him to live in the same house. So the house was really small. They had three small bedrooms and one living room, so it was my grandpa's house and uh, there were seven people living in the same house and the young couple my mom and my dad were sleeping in the living room so everyone was crossing that room to get to their bedroom and also they had one bedroom which they rent away in order to make some money and Mm -hmm. people didn't have you know, places to live, so always military families or somebody returning from Germany from the war had to find his own place to stay, so the one room was uh, given for rent uh, to the military um, family or someone else. So that's why my father and my mom had to live in that house as a newly married couple for Probably half a year.
2: Do you know anything about their actual wedding?
0: I know that it was not actual wedding in in current uh, you know understanding of like wedding uh, celebration. I know that his brother gave um, or I would say rented civil suit. To my father because he didn't have any clothes
2: he, he on. only had his like military, military
0: uniform uniform and uh, the gift they've got was the metal frame bed metal frame and somebody as a gift brought the few pieces of lumber like boards to put on the metal frame and somebody else brought mattress used mattress in order for them to use it that's the 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 gifts they've got so
2: wow so did they have they didn't have an actual ceremony then or they had like a civil ceremony
0: they they had to come to the the government office and just to sign the papers and they got you know marriage certificate that's about it there was not any synagogue In town, there was not even any church in, in. so there was not any other institution to to make their ceremony official besides this government office.
2: And so grandpa wore like a borrowed suit from his brother. And what about grandma? Do you know what she wore?
0: I don't know. I don't think it was her special uh, wedding dress that time. I don't think so. They had this stuff. And, um, I know that the the ring my mom had the ring uh, inherited from her grandparents, I believe, and same probably for my father. I don't know how he got his ring.
2: So they they did, you know, they they had their wedding rings, but they, there wasn't really any pomp and circumstance to the whole thing, they just got married, you know, they signed the they had not, yeah, Yeah,
0: and then they had probably like family dinner together, uh, you know, close family, and that's about it. So there was not a big celebration of any kind.
2: Did Do you know if there are any photographs that exist?
0: No, I did not see any wedding uh, pictures, I only have a few pictures taken later on uh when my sister was born. Those are the first pictures which survived all this time. And people didn't get used to taking pictures every moment or every day or even every month. People took pictures only a few times in their life. Uh, when they were born. I remember my picture when I was naked baby. You know On my stomach, that was a standard position, (laughs) I would say. And then uh, there were pictures when kids went to school. First day at school, September 1st, everyone had to be taken. And also, later on, people started taking pictures when there were like family reunions. But on a regular basis, nobody took pictures um, every month. It was a special event. Mm.
2: So do you think it's then it's not strange that even though he was a photographer, or I guess he was an assistant at that time, and his brother was a photographer, uh, that on their wedding day they, they didn't take any pictures?
0: No, I'm not surprised.
1: Coming up in part two, my grandfather Builds the foundation for his life and his family and his career. And my father talks about decades of life in the Soviet Union. That's next time on the Sasha Photography Podcast.